Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and in the next few weeks, this show will be as patient-centric as it can be. Those we hear from most often are doctors or healthcare providers. Less often, patients are in the limelight as speakers. To give you an insight in their perspective, I carefully chose people who have either chronic conditions, had serious illnesses, or are patient advocates. So in the next few weeks, you will hear about what duties patients have and what are the basics you should know about if you get sick and are suddenly going from doctor's office to doctor's office from patient advocate Grace Cordovano. You know, there's no course on being a professional patient. There's no degree in being a patient. So how could anyone actually know what to do when you're not taught? So in some ways, what happens is people are dropped into the healthcare system and dragged through it. And I think the duty of all of us as patients is to lift each other up and to help us network and hack the system together. You will hear about support patients need outside the healthcare system and the increasingly important role of health coaches from CEO and founder of your coach, Marina Barakovich. The current statistics say that there's about 109,000 health coaches that are in U.S., but this number is highly underestimated because this is only going after the health coaches who are reimbursed by employers or insurance, and these are mostly nutritional therapies. And in our estimation, there's about 500,000 coaches, and the industry is growing. But first, we'll start with Roy Sternin, speaker and entrepreneur who visited 33 doctors and after they gave up on him because they couldn't find the reason for his medical problems, he had no choice but tried to figure out himself what his medical problems were caused by. Five years after his problems began, he was diagnosed with a rare disease called the POTS syndrome, a condition involving the autonomic nervous system and sympathetic ner nervous system and affecting blood flow in the body. Roy was born in Israel and after he got better, he founded several healthcare companies and is currently the CEO of Valera Health, a company aiming at automating a certain level of processes doctors do inside IT systems they use. Roy was also Chief Patient Officer for the National Institute of Health Research of Austria. So in the following discussion, you will hear about what a Chief Patient Officer does, why this should be an integral part of more organizations, and Roy's journey in the healthcare system. As always, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to find the summary of this show. And if you're not a subscriber yet, do subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss other episodes in this series about patients in healthcare. Now, to Roy. Roy, you have a rare disease called the POTS syndrome, and you were diagnosed almost 12 years ago, but it took five years to get to that diagnosis. Can you take us through the journey? Yes. 
apparently this illness is not so rare anymore. In recent studies and surveys in the last few years, it's been shown that it's growing and it's kind of scaring me that it is because there must be an environmental factor to this illness. So I got these first symptoms when I was around uh, 19. I first collapsed uh, when I was almost 22. And from this age on, for the next five years, I was bedridden. Um, it was very hard. I had to see a lot of doctors. Uh, I've been admitted to hospitals many, many times, but they couldn't find the answer. I think that as a chronic patient, I felt uh, all the stages uh, and went through all the stages of this kind of grief that you go through because you have this hope at the beginning that it's only a few weeks and then there must be a cure. Somebody will help me. The doctors will help me. But after a few years, you just realize that nothing will happen and you have to kind of take matters to your own hand. So this was my journey as a patient, but then I had to, you know, do something about it. What was your experience like in this setting? You know, so how did you feel when the doctors couldn't find anything. How did the relationship between you as a patient change towards the, the medical staff? Were you ever worried? Did you feel that the doctors are annoyed because they can't find anything or that they don't believe you? So what was it like from the emotional perspective and the burden? So it's kind of interesting to, to to look at it from both perspectives because something you just said made me think that it was very frustrating, but also for my doctors, I would guess. I think that the relationship started as a very professional one. Of course, the system is very burdened and the doctors don't have a lot of time. In many public-based uh, care systems, doctors are overburdened, uh, so they didn't have a lot of time, but they treated me kind of well at the beginning because I was very young and, you know, a very happy person and very positive. As time went by, I felt more of alienation coming from my doctors towards me until I reached the point that I was ridiculed and treated, I call it violently because uh, nobody forcefully hit me, but uh, this term, new term called medical violence that um, patients sometimes feel oppressed by their caretakers. And as time went by, I felt more and more oppressed and I grew more and more frustrated and, and lonely. And eventually I, I lost all trust and belief in my doctors. And I believe they lost trust and believe in me because they didn't believe I actually have something anymore, you know, after all this testing and admissions and trying. So when you look at it from both perspectives, it's a miscommunication, but you can actually understand both sides, yeah. How many doctors did you go to? Until my diagnosis, I counted 33. Um, the 33rd doctor was the one who told my parents that I would never um, walk again, go to university, marry a woman, or um, work in my life. So I stopped seeing new doctors afterwards and just focused on finding my own cure. Finding your own cure? Yeah. After hearing something like this, you just, you need to, to make a very strong and tough decision. I thought I need to make a decision whether I'm healing myself or killing myself, basically, because I had no hope left. You know, uh, I was bedridden. I could barely walk, barely talk. And I weighed like 30 kilograms less. There was no 
sign that I will get better. So I've decided to be an entrepreneur in my own world and try to solve the problem, which is me and my health. How did that look like? So what was your first step? And how long did it take you to, you know, to gather the strength to go from despair that I imagined was present when medical professionals said that there's no hope for you to the point that you decided that you're just going to try anything that's in your power to figure things out? What happened actually is that I tried to, you know, I wasn't in a very good shape, but I tried to put some system into this process. I'm not a super organized person, but I decided that I'm, I have to adapt the way doctors think and work, the scientific methods they use in order to make this thing even possible, this, this endeavor, journey or crusade to find my own diagnosis and my own cure. And what I did, I kind of studied, first of all, the medical system, the scientific way the doctors work, like, because we, we don't think about it as science sometimes because it looks like a, something very procedural, administrative. But there is a very strong science behind the methodology and protocols in, in healthcare. And when I figure out how to structure my process in a way that I actually copy the way doctor works and I try to find a differential diagnosis and try to statistically eliminate uh, all the other possible conditions, then I could start, actually. Um, but it was a very painstaking process, indeed. What kind of technologies did you use, given that this was over a decade ago? So basically, I didn't have a lot in my disposal. I didn't have a smartphone. Only a few years into my illness, I got a present from my uncle, this huge bulky laptop that I could use from bed. Before that, I could rarely use the computer because I was too sick to go to the desktop stationary computer. Once I got this laptop, I basically used open sources in medical and healthcare. Uh, and I used friends' access to academic sources. Some of my friends went to medical school or paramedical professions like physical therapy. So I can use their access to gain information in things like PubMed and, and other channels that are stupidly, in my opinion, not open to the general public. I had to actually not only read about healthcare, I had to be certain that everything I read is correct. So I had to trace back the materials and syllabus of medical schools and use those references. But it was very hard because the only technology I could use was basically my own laptop with a browser, you know. And you wanted to study medicine before you got sick, right? Did that in any way help you? Did you have a network of friends or colleagues that you could turn to to gather information that you were looking for? Yeah, I was kind of lucky enough to have a few close friends who already started medical school. We were on our way and journey to study together. So I could use their insights and mainly their materials. I knew several physicians, but I had a certain understanding in the human body since I, I did my kind of, let's, let's call it um, the A-level parallels we have in Israel. I did it in biology and I was trained as a, a, a paramedic. So I had some general knowledge to start with, um, but mainly the resources I used were uh, was the kindness of uh, those rare doctors who were kind and nice to me. 
And those kind doctors allowed me to explore the options that are not obvious and to seek for medical testing that it's not very obvious sometimes to do in, in conditions, you know, that are not rare. Um, so based on this kindness and based on uh, some network of connections, I could get a head start. You said before that you saw 33 doctors. What kind of specials were they? Like, were you referred to different specialties, to different specialists? How did that look like? So it, it's kind of funny because we have this expert medicine nowadays. 30, 40 years ago, you'd seen your family doctor and rarely you would have seen a specialist. But now you see so many specialists that it's kind of funny to me because I call it, I sometimes call it organ-based medicine or, you know, like micro-medicine. Nobody's looking at the big picture. And I've seen more than 10 different specialists. Like when I had problem breathing, they sent me to a lung doctor. When I had problem with my digestive system, they sent me to a gastroenterologist. When I had problems, you know, it, everything was kind of a cardiology and rheumatology and skin. But all I wanted and I begged for it is to have one expert or one uh, physician who would actually take all the information into account. So I think that it's it's reflective of the problem we have today because you would expect that with all the technology we have, if you see so many experts, they kind of will combine their insights. But it's just another filing system that, uh, you know, he said that and that's his note. And your family doctor is supposed to make sense of it. But in many cases, he's just acting as a clerk and not a doctor. Um, even though those guys are amazing and they chose community medicine, but they're just succumbing to the strains of the system. The medical field is so vast and there's new discoveries coming in every day that I think one of the disillusionments that you can experience as a patient is that sometimes, you know, an information, if you have comorbidities with your disease, different specialists won't really know what to do with certain informations about your other drugs or other conditions, because that's at least my experience, that they just expect other specialists that are specialized for that specific thing will take care of that. So that's where this notion of precision medicine is still not in action, even though, you know, as patients, before you have problems and before you learn about the medical system and the healthcare system, you think that doctors and the healthcare systems are almighty, but it's far from that, right? Yeah, I think I kind of gave doctors this glorification and admiration that they deserve by doing amazing stuff. But eventually you expect this human sitting in front of you who has so many things to do in seven minutes, five minutes, 11 minutes, depends on the HMOs, you know, around the world. In my case, it was around five to seven minutes and is expected to give you good health care and wellness and uh, think clearly enough to send you to the right specialist. And eventually, we're talking about precision medicine, but I'm always bringing it, everything back to the lack of good health IT infrastructure, because I believe that even my family doctor giving the right EMR or EHR, like the, the, the records that he's using, the system to log my, my symptoms and, and to manage my health, 
if it was optimized enough and it didn't it didn't have to spend half of its time with me typing and doing administration I believe that um, this miscommunication was less worse than it was and we might got a uh, diagnostic much earlier if we go back to your search for the diagnosis can you elaborate a bit further how did the aha moment happen when did you um, got an idea of your problems could be caused by the pot syndrome and what did you do after that you know did you go to the doctor again did you get some confirmation it was a journey yeah so there were a few aha moments on the way along the way and those aha moments happened when I could not only theorize about these symptoms fitting something that might uh, you know correlate with an actual illness because at the beginning I couldn't find enough you know enough information to support it so every time I got closer I felt that there is a breakthrough coming but the main aha moment was the fact that I found this crazy research made by a physician at NASA and they surveyed some paper I think it was made by the Russian Space Administration and those astronauts coming back from the Mir station after a few months they had similar symptoms to what I had so this survey let me kind of to this Uh, to believe that maybe there is a correlation to the autonomic nervous system and that was the main aha moment and after a few weeks I could actually locate a doctor in Israel that when he was uh, a fellow in the states he made a contribution to a study uh, about this illness is a rheumatologist and some patients with pots have EDS which is a rheumatological genetic uh, disorder of the joints And the connective tissues so this doctor was the actual lead but you know uh, from that on you have to deal with bureaucracy so I think that every time I had a aha moment and every time I had a new direction I still as a patient had to navigate and navigate and and support my claims because you cannot go to a doctor and tell him I found my own diagnosis so what I did was When I found this aha moment, I went back to the nicest physician I had in those years. He was a dermatologist in my hometown. And I begged him, risking even maybe his career, because I'm not sure he was allowed to help me do tests like this, to justify a few blood tests and imaging to help me come to this expert with enough information to rule out everything else so he can believe me. So imagine the strength I had to go through and this kind of, it's kind of a detective, lawyer, researcher, kind of hunter, crusader job that you have to do while actually being the sickest that you've been in your life. So it's kind of funny to me. It's difficult to imagine how you managed to do this because of, The requirements of real life, which is survival money, you couldn't work, you were not a child anymore. So who took care of you, you know, financially and just socially? Did you get any social welfare? Was that taken care of? I'm afraid not enough. Only at a very, very, very later stage, I had two or three talks with the uh, kind of resident social worker of my HMO. You can imagine this woman has thousands of people needing her attention. So it was kind of not enough, I would say. Nice effort, but not enough. But I think that the main 
disappointment I had from this system in terms of the welfare was the fact that I, I couldn't function anymore and I couldn't work anymore. And my parents are getting into debt because they have to, you know, not work for several days, make a lot of private uh, medical expenses, even though we have a public system. And eventually, without diagnosis, you cannot get welfare. So it was a chicken and an egg kind of situation. And in terms of social and mental care, I became from this nice guy to this hyper cyberchondriac, you know, this guy who's digging for symptoms because he wants to be sick. And eventually I was accused, very serious accusation, by faking my own illness. My parents was accused in neglection, in neglect, even Michausen syndrome, you know, by proxy. Sometimes we add these allegations. My doctors want my parents to talk to the police. They've sent me to a psychiatrist because they were certain that I'm faking my illness, but they didn't even care about the fact that I was depressed because of my illness. And if it's a mental thing, please take care of me. My conclusion is that mental health is regarded as kind of secondhand health or medicine, and that I can't even imagine how is it like to be a mental health patient nowadays with all the progress we have. If I've been treated with neglect as a patient with, a, I'm, I'm double quoting, physical illness, what would somebody with my condition with a mental illness do? I think we have a huge crisis in this field. Do you see any differences in the attitude towards problems like yours uh, in Israel compared to any other countries that you know? You're currently based in Austria. Your company, which we will come to soon, is active in the U.S. So I'm pretty sure that you know how these healthcare systems function, at least to a certain extent. Could you make any comparisons? You know, I can make technical comparisons. And I can say that I had a very nice experiences in healthcare around the world and I had very bad experiences around the world. It's it's amazing that I'm 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 a tech guy, right? And I developed like an AI based solution to solve this miscommunication problems. But eventually I, I will always say it's all about the human touch and the human side of things. So if you have a physician who cares it can change the world for you as a patient. The thing is that I recognize a pattern universally when patients with invisible illnesses like mine, like patients who you cannot see that they're very sick sometimes until it's too late, or patients with undiagnosed conditions are being treated poorly across the, the world. And it's kind of a universal problem. Some people, you know, some people sometimes tell me, If you are very rich and you see private doctors, maybe it can kind of improve it. So I believe on the superficial side, it might, because people are paid to give you more time and more attention. But eventually, those people are still using those lousy systems that are not really empowering the doctor, but actually making him more of a secretary than a doctor. And he doesn't have time to look you in the eyes and touch you and to have a, a real human connection with you. And we have all these technologies today to do decision support for doctors, but they're not installed yet. And not because the technologies are not there. I think that everything eventually at the beginning and at the end is, is depending on the digitalization of processes and the improvement of EMR services, even before talking about insurance. So this pattern I see 
it will only be solved by educating doctors and patients for more empowerment and connections and empowering patients that that's so important but giving doctors better working conditions in terms of physical working conditions better tech and IT for doing their job better and kind of bridging those gaps by changing the protocols because I don't think even if we solve this thing scribing problems right now the doctors are not used to work in a way that they have all the time in the world just to talk to the patients they're, they're in the last 20 years all they do is scribe you know so we have to re-educate an entire population of professionals in being doctors back again you know clinicians and that's one of the things we're trying to do in Valero how did your perception of medicine and doctors change? During this whole process, so before you got sick, you wanted to become a doctor. What was your main motivation? What kind of disillusionment did you go through after seeing that doctors are sometimes also helpless? So it, it was exactly as you, as you described it, a complete disillusion. I think that most of us dreamers who want to be doctors are doing it from a very naive perspective and pure one. We want to help people. We want to save lives. We want to empower people. We want to give people better, you know, health care. But eventually, um, life is not Grey's Anatomy. When I joined doctors in hospital for shifts, like as an observer before I was enrolled to med, med school, I've seen weary-eyed doctors, exhausted doctors, that spend most of their time in um, administration, less than clinical work. And that was something that I can live with. But my fear was that I could not change the system and I would be a very disappointed doctor. And when I got better enough to, to make this decision, I was kind of thinking that healthcare has become more of a firefighting than actual making people feel better or healthier. I felt that doctors are more like firefighters putting out symptoms, putting out fires instead of dealing with prevention and education for health and actually doing wellness work with the patients. Of course, I'm not blaming, blaming them because all of the reasons I mentioned, but I thought that if I would go back to this medical world and system, I would be a very frustrated doctor And that maybe if I go and study something like education and combine all this cool thing of entrepreneurship and, and have enough knowledge about healthcare, but enough feet in the ground to do something about it, maybe I can make a change. How soon after you got a diagnosis did you get better? What kind of drugs did you get? And how did your entrepreneurial... Uh, journey start you founded three companies so far this is very interesting journey because you know i became from this guy who invent his own illness and fake it to the guy that now after diagnosis is so sick nobody wants to treat anymore even a dentist you know i was so sick they were afraid i i, I faint and and you know die in their hands so basically back again to the drawing board back to this DYI medicine I had to find a way to make myself better so I use those medications they give us with pots you know and most of them are just symptom controllers and I use them because I needed to find a way to get out of bed and to be strong enough to start rehabilitation but I had to actually plan my own rehabilitation today we have this 
rehabilitation programs and it's very well established, not well enough, but very well. But I had to actually plan my own rehabilitation program and go from lying in bed to, to walking again and standing again and functioning again. So, you know, I, I had to do it myself. And uh, the insight there was kind of similar. When did you start your uh, first company? So you had three companies. DocuMe is a solution for improved patient flow and shorter waiting times in the ER. Then there's Help Plus, a social network aiming at saving lives in uh, emergencies as part of the disaster relief. And you're currently working on Valero Clinical. What happened to the startups before Valero? So just take us through that entrepreneurial journey. Actually, so the first, I had two more companies with the same teams. I, I, we cannot actually call it two more companies. It was uh, uh, two different products, maybe, in coming from the same uh, team. The first year of school, I devoted myself into getting better and empowering myself and learning about how to be an entrepreneur, just trying out a few projects in and around college. The second year of school, I started uh, this crazy idea of a company to to create a defibrillator that is costing only a hundred euros because I thought that it's kind of stupid that you have to pay so much money to have this life-saving device. I come from this emergency medicine. It was the convenient spot for me to start. Everybody told me I'm crazy because there was a guy working on the same thing, another student in Ireland, but as an Israeli, I just called him and we joined hands and we joined two, two other German experts and we started this company and uh, we failed eventually. We had a problem with their certification. We couldn't make it work, but it was the best school of my life. We went on to another product and we failed again. After one and a half years, we had a prototype and we were going under a lawsuit regarding patent violation. I'm not going to go into it. We didn't do it, but eventually we couldn't uh, go on with the process. And then I actually realized that this is all nice and well, but it's not exactly what I want to do to help the same population that I need to because there must be a reason I went through all this craziness of, of years in bed. So I've decided that I'm focusing right now on helping people who are in need, especially in the terms of communication between systems and patients, doctors and patients, caretakers and patients. So then I was kind of more inclined into starting ideas that I actually connected to from the bottom of my heart. You know, when you lie in bed and you really want somebody to help you, like this button for help was kind of a dream for me. So help was kind of more a social network of health. It was a beautiful model. We worked with a few agencies in Israel and the Deaf Association in Israel. That was our pilot. It was the first solution for deaf and hearing impaired people in Israel to call for help. This model was adopted by the Israeli Red Cross and other organizations. And then I figure out that it's not enough again. It's saving life, but it's not enough because I lied in bed and I spent times because doctors couldn't uh, understand my story well enough. So then we started DocMe, which is really interesting because all we tried to do is to prevent what happened to me. I had this idea that while, while the patient is, is talking to the doctors, if you could see those red flags, maybe situation like mine could have been prevented. You know, everything I told my doctors, when I talk today to young medical students, when they fresh, they immediately shout autonomic nervous system problem. So I think that my doctor was just too, too burdened to do it. Uh, so this company went on and we did a very interesting project here in Israel, but eventually we had to dissolve it because we figure out that 
this idea it's not accurate enough to this stage. You know, sometimes you're too early for your market. We took the team and we joined hand with an amazing team sitting in Rochester, New York. And this team in the last 10 years or so are trying to solve the same problems or doctor-patient connection. And when we had long and long hours on hours on end of discussions, we realized that the problem is not me inventing this cool uh, streamlining of the patient questionnaire like we did in DocMe and give the doctor some insights. The problem is the big, to begin with that no system would integrate me inside of it. And that the doctors, they really don't want another solution because they're so burdened by their own tech. So we decided to take this idea of DocMe and put it on steroids and basically optimize and automate processes the doctors are wasting time on. And actually what we're doing right now is that we save doctors so much time they use on this really, I can't even describe how time is wasted in their clinics, that we see amazing results. There, there, is, there is a study saying that doctors are performing up to 1,000th click of a mouse when they see one patient. This is insane. So we try just to sh- make shortcuts for the doctors and give him more face time with the patients. And I'm very proud of this project. This is Valero Clinical. This is the, the 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 company that I'm working on right now. The development team is sitting in Israel. I'm I'm sitting in Europe, developing the European market, and the rest of the team is sitting in Rochester, New York. We are working now with a, a medical clinic in Rochester with nine physicians um, in our beta trial, and in a few weeks we're launching our product in the states, starting with Athena Health as our first EMR, and moving on to the next few EMRs in the in the next few months. The thing I learned as a patient entrepreneur that there is no ego in these things. So I think that this company is something I'm so proud of because, you know, you come to your competitor and you persuade him you should work together because you can save lives. And instead of being a CEO, I was the CEO of DocMe. I just stepped down and I took one of my amazing advisor and offered him to be the CEO because I think we should all work together. I think it's like, it's the only way we can solve this huge problem of health IT. You came to Vienna from Israel to become the first ever chief patient officer for the National Institute of Health Research of Austria. This is a very, very interesting title. Can you tell me a bit more about the role, what the role is for, what are the things that you are in charge of, how does it look like? This is very interesting. I was consulting a hospital group in Vienna. Um, I was part of their think tank of the future of healthcare. And I met a lot of hospital administrators in my life, but I never met a group of people so dedicated for patients as, as this. They are the Vinces group in Austria. They have eight hospitals across Austria. And they invited me to bring the patient, kind of patient entrepreneur side of things. And in this process, I gave a talk and somebody saw my talk. And in this talk, I, I told about my belief that in every medical organization, everywhere you have patients being taken care of, you need to have a chief patient, not only a chief doctor. And somebody was crazy enough to think that it's a good idea or not too crazy idea. So I came to Austria a year ago with an intention to only do six months of project with them as a senior advisor or consultant. And what we did is to lay the ground for the future new way to treat patients. This is a medical research organization. So what they did is kind of, um, we started a policy 
like a cookbook of how to incorporate patients in research because nobody would give a, you know a- enough attention to the way that patients are being treated in in research and we laid the ground to this work and I started this role of patient in residence which is basically a chief patient before that it was only available in pharma companies and and this is a blessed move but pharma companies putting a chief patient to be more connected to their clients. This is a commercial approach. I thought it should be in every hospital and any medical organization. And the idea is to create a six-month role that every six months another patient comes. This patient can be a professor. This patient can be uh, an entrepreneur. It can be um, a leader of a patient organization. But this patient basically can, can be not only a representative of patient, but it can be also a true leader in decision-making, you know, because I hear a lot about involving patients, but I don't see a lot of patients actually sitting on boards and making decisions regarding other patients. Yeah. In your opinion, why is that? It's starting to change, but there's a lot of, of course, medical paternalism around. The profession of medicine has always been involved with paternalism, guild-based kind of, I was a young doctor suffering, so you will be a young doctor suffering. The patient is only a patient, and I have all the knowledge. So this is starting to change with all the patient-centered movements and all the patient revolution movements, but I think it's not enough. I think that medicine is the only industry in which the voice of the customer doesn't count or doesn't matter. I think if you come to a tech company and tell them they should not care about the end customer, they would just sit there and laugh because, you know, if nobody wants to use my service, I don't have a market. But we created this healthcare system in which we maintain sickness and not health. So it's kind of a inertial systems that sometimes you see superficial attempts to improve the kind of service, they call it, for patients, but you don't see a lot of real attempts to make those organizations or those places to friendlier to patients, to empower patients, to engage in wellness and prevention and not only symptom alleviations. So I think it's a systematic problem and a universal problem. You see the first flowers of change around the world, but revolution is yet to come. In your journey, we talked a lot about the role of doctors, but nurses play a significant role in taking care of patients. And as Shauna Butler says, nurses have a well of knowledge about patients because they are the closest to the suffering. What were your experiences with the nurses and how do you see the, their changing role in healthcare innovation and patient centricity? I think the future lays in nurses. I'm in love with this profession. I think they're in the trenches doing the hard work. Of course, I, I appreciate doctors so much. I have a lot of doctor friends and I work with doctors, but eventually nurses, I agree. I couldn't agree more with what she said. I think that nurses are close enough to the patients, but not in a way that will uh, make them maybe biased. You know, bias in medicine is a big deal. And I think that in 10 years, we're going to see a huge shift that most of the care being delivered will be done by nurses, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants, and less by doctors. 
we will see doctors more as a captain of an airplane, um, in charge of everything, or, you know, um, overseeing the, the work of, of the, the machines and the other people, but not touching the helms too much. I think the doctors will make crucial decisions and they will make procedures, of course, but the nurses will be there to execute, will have more tools, more AI... And especially in the third world, what I predict with my limited, of course, uh, knowledge and expertise, that nurses will provide most of the care with assistance, with uh, assistive tools. A nurse with a bag of instruments based on a smartphone and, and ex- exchangeable add-ons to this smartphone could basically be acting as a doctor in the future. And I believe that's what's going to happen. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned for the next episode about patients in healthcare. Do subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a rating or a review to help other listeners interested in healthcare find the show as well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.